Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikaway, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, uh, August the 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches uh, on the charging of a former political official in Guinea-Conakry for financial misconduct. The Congress of South African Trade Unions has called upon the African National Congress government to pay special attention to the plight of young workers inside the country. The military regime in Burkina Faso has stated that there will be a renewed effort to end rebel violence in this West African state. And President Julius Bill of uh, Sierra Leone has accused members of the opposition of fomenting unrest over the last few days. In the second hour, we continue our focus on Black August with a rare archival interview uh, with uh, Pan-African historian and analyst C.L.R. James uh, on the political movements of the 20th century. Later, we listen to a policy address from South African Deputy President David Mabusa addressing the African National Congress Provincial Conference taking place this weekend in the Northwest Province of South Africa. Finally, we will hear a recent briefing uh, from two days ago from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that's based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features uh, will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with the Ethiopian artist uh, known as Gigi. Let's listen in. I'm 
I'm 
Speak 
Welcome back. We just heard uh, the voice and the music of uh, Gigi, uh, who is Gigi Yewu Shababa from the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. A uh, selection uh, of uh, tracks uh, from uh, that artist. And right now we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story uh, deals with the current Political situation in the West African state of Guinea, Conakry. Uh, Guinea will prosecute former uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Ibrahima Kasuri Fofana, over the alleged embezzlement of more than four million U.S. dollars in public funds intended for economic, political, and social programs. The Justice Ministry said. Fofana is also being investigated for allegedly embezzling more than $40 million in COVID aid. I hereby order you to initiate legal proceedings against Mr. Ibrahima Fasori Fofana uh, for alleged embezzlement, money laundering, corruption, and complicity. Uh, Justice Minister Alphonse Charles Wright said in a letter to the Prosecutor General just this last past Thursday. He said the accusations related to payments of 41 billion Guinea and francs at 4.7 million U.S. dollars and $400,000 made uh, during 2020. Wright also ordered proceedings against uh, Fofana's former special advisor, Ansumani Kamada, and several former officials at the National Agency for Economic and Social Inclusion, a government agency over the same accusations. Fofana served as prime minister under ex-president Alpha Conde from May 2018 until September 2021 when the army ousted the elected government in a coup. The former premier has been detained since April for fraud. On July the 15th, authorities announced they would investigate him over alleged embezzlement. At the time, Wright was then prosecutor general. I said Fofana was accused of embezzling 46.2 million U.S. dollars in financial aid intended to help battle the coronavirus pandemic. At the time, Wright, uh, who was then Prosecutor General, said Fofana was accused of embezzling the money 
uh, a junta led by Colonel Mamadou Mamadi Dumbaya, a former special forces commander, seized power on September the 5th of last year, accusing uh, the former President Conde of corruption and authoritarianism. It has promised to combat endemic graft in the improvised in the impoverished West African state, but also uh, insisted it will not launch a witch hunt. A number of the former officials have been detained in late July. Anti-government protests left five people dead. In South Africa, the COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Union Young Workers Forum, has called on the African National Congress leadership to address social ills listed in their memorandum or to make way for younger leadership. A group of about 100 people marched to the union buildings in commemoration of International Youth Day yesterday. They have given uh, the presidency 14 days to address their concerns. Our government must start taking us seriously or they must shift out of power and allow young and fresh blood to take over. Said National Secretary Sian Bonga Minkizi. The issue of age uh, has been a reoccurring uh, theme at the Kosatu Young Workers Forum with young leaders accusing the older guard of being detached from South Africa's reality and failing to run the country. A substantial memorandum was handed over to officials from the National Energy Regulator and the Labor Department. This year's Month of Youth uh, was celebrated by elders only in government whose children are living well, better compared to the child in this, in this country under the current situation. That was according to National Secretary Sia Bongo uh, Mkizi, Kosatu Young Workers Forum has declared Friday's march a success, saying the turnout was impressive for a first march. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In Burkina Faso, uh, the Army officials will deploy a new strategy to push back jihadist insurgents and recapture lost territory, the Defense Ministry said yesterday. The landlocked Sahel state is in the grip of a seven-year-old insurgency that has claimed more than 2,000 lives and forced some 1.9 million people to leave their homes. Burkina Faso's insurgency has been concentrated in the north and the east, led by assailants suspected to have links with al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. But other regions have not been spared. In January, disgruntled colonels led by Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henry Santiago Damiba uh, ousted uh, elected President Rochmar Christian Gopore, accused of failing to resolve the security crisis. Defense Minister General Bartolome Sempor told a press conference the Army would reorganize fighting units to take back areas from rebels and allow displaced people to safely return home. The aim was to reduce the armed terrorist group's ability to move and protect areas that are not yet at risk. He said, when complete, uh, the operational reorganization will enable the recovery of control uh, over all the areas in the grips of terrorists. The minister did not provide details on what the military reorganization would look like in practice. But he said government administration and territorial integrity would be restored. The state does not have control over more than 40% of Burkina's territory, according to official data. Security has not improved since the MIBA's coup, uh, with jihadist attacks multiplying in the past few months, targeting soldiers and civilians. Between August 4th and August 10th, around 40 people, including 20 soldiers, have been killed. 
uh, in several attacks blamed on armed jihadists in the northern regions of Burkina Faso. And finally, also in the West African state of Sierra Leone, the president of Sierra Leone blamed deadly protests this week on opposition parties, claiming Friday night uh, that his political rivals had attempted to overthrow his government in a premeditated insurrection. Now, on Wednesday, a demonstration organized by women to draw attention to inflation and the rising cost of living descended into clashes between security forces and young men demanding President Julius Maada Dio resign. Violence erupted in several parts of the country with the authorities imposing an internal blackout. In response, six protesters and four police officers were killed, according to police and hospital sources, but no official toll has been given. Uh, while shops and businesses in the capital of Freetown have reopened, the government has imposed a curfew between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m., and troops are patrolling the streets. In an address to the nation on Friday evening, uh, Bill, a general-term politician who was elected in 2018, said the opposition had been stoking tension for some time. This was not a protest against the high cost of living occasioned by the ongoing global economic crisis, he said. The chance of the insurrectionists was for a violent overthrow of the democratically elected government. The president specifically cited members of the All People's Congress, his party's main political rival, and the country's former ruling party, as well as the People's Progressive Party. The peace, security, and stability of this nation were, were shattered by persons whose insurrection was premeditated, it was well-planned, financed, and executed with shocking brutality, the president said. Shortly after the president's address, the All People's Congress released its own statement calling for adherence to the rule of law, though it did not directly respond to the allegations. We urge all stakeholders to de-escalate tensions and avoid inflammatory rhetoric or unfounded pronouncements, the statement said. As a party, we continue reaffirming and reinforcing our commitment to sustainable peace and national cohesion. President Bio promised an investigation into the unrest and state funerals for the security officers who were killed. Sierra Leone has had a reputation for relative stability since the end of the Civil War that ran from 1991 to 2002 and left about 120,000 people dead. But the economy, heavily dependent on minerals, has struggled to rebound and the population of 8 million lives in one of the lives in one of the poorest nations on the earth. The United Nations Human Development Index ranks Sierra Leone 182 out of 189 countries. Efforts are rebuilding, efforts aimed at rebuilding were set back by an Ebola pandemic between 2014 and 2016, a fall in the world commodity prices and the coronavirus pandemic over the last two and a half years, all of which have disrupted trade and investment and has also had an impact on exports. In July, the country slashed three zeros off its currency, hoping to restore confidence in the inflation hit. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 
since January of 1998. The news agency has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, in magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you would like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, August the 13th, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and today is Saturday, August the 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard uh, the voice of Marsha Hunt uh, with the tune entitled Black Flower. And this is uh, Black August, and uh, all during this month we have been featuring aspects uh, of the struggle against enslavement, uh, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, national oppression, racism, and all forms of exploitation. And uh, right now we're going to hear another interview uh, with uh, the legendary uh, C.L.R. James. This was an interview done uh, during the uh, 1980s uh, with Stuart Hall in London. And, of course, C.L.I. James was a renowned uh, author, uh, wrote the Black Jacobins, The History of Pan-African Revolt, World Revolution, uh, and Krum and the Ghana Revolution, and many, many other works. So let's listen uh, to C.L.I. James. for a conversation which charts the development of one of the foremost black political thinkers and activists of this century, a development which grew alongside his love of cricket. C.L.R. James is talking to Stuart Hall. C.L.R. James is one of the most outstanding black intellectuals of his time. This year, to mark his 85th birthday, an exhibition has been mounted of his life and work and a new production of his play, Black Jacobins, the first since Paul Robeson took the role of Toussaint Louverture in 1936. James has spent much of his life in England and the United States as novelist, historian, cricket writer, above all, political theorist and activist. He was born in Trinidad in 1901 and lived there for the first 30 years of his life. My mother's father was an engine driver. He drove from San Fernando to Pensacola and back. He was notable because he was a fireman and there were no black engine drivers. But his engine driver died suddenly, and they didn't know what to do. So they gave him the job as fireman, and he became the first black fireman. And he was put to fill in the gap, and he kept it. And my mother, my father's father, came from Antigua, one of those islands, where Black men used to see after the the sugar, but in Trinidad, black men were not allowed to do that. In Trinidad, that job was done by white people, but he came from Antigua, and he could do it. So when there was problem in the shop, he said, I can do it. And they put him to do it, and he took it. So on both sides, 
I came from the black, not so high lower middle class. <laughs> we were, we were something. And my mother is to this day the most persistent reader I know. You say that about both your parents several times. My father was a teacher and he was trained at the Tranquility Training School and he was number one. So between them I grew up, I came to England and people asked me, but James, how do you speak English so well? I said, I've never spoken anything else. But it's not just that you spoke English. By then you had read. Not that only that, and what I'm trying to say is in the house, my mother read everything. Without discrimination, everything. And I'm in the house, as she read, I, she would tell me, don't read that. But she would put it in some part of her press, I would find it and read it. But what kinds of things were you reading? I tell you, there was Zachary, there was Dickens, there was Charlotte Bronte, there was Charles Garvis, there was a woman called Mrs. E.D.E.N. Southworth, a whole lot of people, all the people in those days. Because my mother was such a reader, anybody who had a book to read or a book to be read came to my mother. And I'm astonished, when I was about seven or eight, in the house, she had her own Shakespeare, she had her own Vanity Fair, and her own Last of the Mohicans. And nowadays, I look back at what the world was like in 1907. I say that because I was not yet eight when I began to take exams. And I find it astonishing that my mother so happened, had been so educated that she, that I don't think there were many people in those days who except the middle classes in England who had the opportunities that I had. And it wasn't only one book. She kept on reading so that I had books all the time. But one book in the house that was there for a long time, Vanity Fair, I read that over and over. I wonder whether you know how many times you read Vanity Fair. I don't know, but I read it twice a year. I read it all the time until I was about 30-something. The book means a lot to me. It shaped my early life. So it's not why Vanity Fair, but what Vanity Fair. I kept on reading it. And I was so young when I was reading it that when I came to Major Dobbin, I would have to turn back to see where he came in. And I marked the page. So when I get into trouble with Dobbin, I know exactly where to go and read him. Now that's my life. That's the way I begin. But I was a bright boy, and I must say, I didn't know that. It's only afterwards that I began to look at the advantages and the disadvantages of having been number one, a bright boy, and number two, the schoolmaster's son. Did that separate you from others? Separated me, very much. Separated me from them, and separated them from me. Because I could read and read a lot of books, so that obviously they... And when anything came up, I had read it, I knew. I God, from the time I was about six years old, I have been the one to know. It's only within the last ten years that I've become an ignoramus, not knowing.
At the age of 11, he entered the world of Queen's Royal College, or QRC, a kind of English public school transplanted to Port of Spain. I went to QRC and made two adventures into knowledge. I began to play cricket and to read about it and to learn about it, and I began to read books, all books. There were books in the library, but the master's room had a set of books, which every master who had come there would bring a book and put it in, and so on. And I used to lunch at school. My parents in the country, I would come bring my lunch to eat, and the master's library was a good friend there. And there were books on the master's tables in every room. All English literature and a good bit of French literature, Latin and Greek were at my disposal. So from the time I was about 11, Latin, Greek, French, some European literature, between 11 and 18, that was there. I had nothing to do but to take it, and what I didn't like, I put back. Those were exceptional circumstances I want to get. Not every boy got a no. range of literature like that. I happened to take my lunch at the school, and at a quarter past 11, everybody went home, and I had nothing to do but to eat my sandwich, and there were the books. And I had a wonderful, I look back now, that was an exceptional opportunity, which I used. But how did the interest in, in cricket begin? I don't mean playing, because lots of people play, no, but the my interest father in studying gave me, cricket. My father gave me a bat and a ball when I was about four years old. Because he had been a cricketer in those days, to be a cricketer in the, in the Caribbean was something. You were a civilized person. What I look back at is, there were eight masters there. Seven of them were men who had degrees from Oxford and Cambridge. So they gave their stamp to the school. And we grew up that way. In addition, there were books in the library, one by a writer, boys writer, called P.G. Wardhouse, wrote a lot of books about English public school. And I read those books. And those books, and the masters, the way they behaved, the way they conducted themselves, the way they spoke, and the games that we played, because I had been playing a lot of cricket with a piece of a bat or some ball or some orange, but it was organized. And there was first 11, second 11, third 11, fourth 11. There we were, organized. So I got into an organized society, different from the one I came from, but it was organized not so much in learning. I paid little attention to what they taught me in school. But I plunged head foremost into the organization of society outside. First of all, the games that we had once a year, we, and I became a tremendous high jumper for years. I was the highest jumper in the Caribbean. When at one time I was jumping 5'11", and the world record was 6'3", which told me because we jumped sideways in those days. I was interested in that. Cricket, football I played, but cricket I learned to become an authority. So I've been writing on cricket since I was about 18, 
So playing and writing, and not only that, I was the authority, I was the expert. Due to my curiosity, because everything I could find I read, and my marvelous memory. The culmination of his cricket writing came in 1963 with the publication of Beyond a Boundary, one of the most unusual books about sport ever written, treating cricket as artistic and dramatic spectacle, as well as putting it in the context of England, the empire, and the anti-colonial struggle. But in fact, his first literary efforts took the form of fiction. I'd written a short story. I used to write stories. We used to publish. And in 1928, a volume appeared, the best short stories of 1928. Every year, the volume used to appear with the best short stories of England. And then in the middle of it was my short story. Thereupon, a lot of information was converted to the Caribbean people. One, that James was a writer. And number two, to James, that he could write. <laughs> the best shot I wanted. Such thing had never crossed my mind, but from that time, more or less, I was going to be a writer. I believe I'd had it in mind early. That is, I was about seven years old. We were still living in Northridge, but that I can go by. And I wrote a story, and I showed it to my mother, about 10 pages in a copy book. She said, that is the last of the Americans that we've been reading. You only take it from there and you put it in Trinidad. So I said, okay. <laughs> For his next book, James turned to politics. He wrote a short biography of the white Trinidadian labor leader, Captain Cipriani, one of the first to pose the question of Caribbean independence. This was later published as The Case for West Indian Self-Government in London in 1932, is your decision to write the biography of Cipriani really your first political involvement? Involvement, I think you are correct. But in all previous people who were talking about independence or putting up for elections against the establishment, I was in favor. All the young people who were literary or well-read were in favor generally but involved the actual writing about Cipriani was quite a step, because nobody had done anything like that before. And when it was heard that I was doing it, a lot of people told me, or wanted to know, I went around speaking and showed it to Cipriani, said, by all means. It was a step, not only for me, but for everybody, that Cipriani's biography should be written. Now, I'm going to ask you something about your formation at this stage, because on the one hand, you've spoken a great deal about the importance of, of Queen's Royal College, uh, a school in, in Trinidad very much modeled on a kind of English public school, and of the influence of teachers with an Oxford and Cambridge background, and the strong influence of English literature, etc. That's one model and a powerful formation for you. On the other hand, is this growing involvement in in the Caribbean and West Indian independence, etc. How do you reconcile these two forces at that stage of your life? I didn't have to reconcile because I got interested in the struggle for colonial independence. It wasn't so much Africa as India. 
Nehru and Gandhi became very important and we talked about them and felt that the Caribbean Trinidad was a part of it too. And the Labour Party in Britain, which used to talk about independence and so forth. So in general, we had our feet pointed the correct way. We didn't do so much, but there we were. And then about 1929, 1930, the movement swelled and I began to take part because before that we were going to meetings, voting, and not doing much. Your novel, Minty Alley, is not published until later, but it's written in this period. It was written about 1928. And it's very much about the life of ordinary Trinidadians. Such as I knew it, my instinct is always to write about what I saw and what I knew. I had learned that from the study of European literature. So I, very well educated by them, knew that the proper way for me to write was to write about what I knew. And I had this great advantage. Nobody else had written. So I, I had a whole field open to myself. And when I began to write about it, the people said, okay, wonderful. So that I was being pushed along by a very, Helpful breeze, yes. It's a, at that time, 32, that you take the decision to go to England. I had to felt before that, that ultimately I had to go to England because they were only publishing little pamphlets and so. To make a living as a writer, I had to go to England. And people told me, you're going to starve. Writers in England don't. But Larry Constantine, told me, you come, and you'll see how you get on. And what happened when I went is quite a story. I mean, what's your first impressions of England in 1932? I was in London for about three months, March till about May. How many black people are in London? at that time? Not too many, not, not too many, a few. I tell you what struck me, I think I remember it. The familiarity between white women and black men. In London, they're quite at home, which is quite something for me, the Caribbean, you know. But my eyes were open and I realized that this was not some Trinidad expanded to Europe, but this was what really mattered. I tell you what surprised me somewhat. The East End, the poverty and the broken down houses and the cheap restaurants where you got a cup of tea and a piece of toast or stale cakes. When I say, but I ain't too different from, yes. But nevertheless, you know, I am fairly level-headed. I realize the British Academy concerts and all that we didn't have, and the 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 picture gallery and the books and all that. 
Then I went to Paris. Tremendous. Paris impressed me more than London because of the books and the concentration of the Paris intellectual life. England was not like that. After arriving in England in 1932, James set off for Nelson, Lancashire. There he lived with his old Trinidadian friend, Larry Constantine, the great cricketer, later to become the first black lord. James still played cricket, and more importantly, got a job writing about it for the Manchester Guardian as Neville Cardis's deputy. He became an active member of the Independent Labour Party, the ILP. Most importantly, he made his first encounter with Marxism as a political theory. And the editor of the Nelson newspaper was a man named Cartmel. And they all were very pleased that Larry Constantine, the cricketer, should have a person like Sheila James writing for the Manchester Guardian. So I went to his office and he said, well, Mr. James, here are these books. And he gave me the history of the Russian Revolution by Leon Trotsky, volume one. And another book he gave me was The Decline of the West by Spengler. So I read both those books and immediately began to see the vast amount of history which I knew. So from there, I suddenly became a Marxist. I tell you a peculiar story. After a year or two, I have read all the Marxist books because it's easy enough. So I said, well, I was joined the Marxist movement. So I said, where are some trusts? Where are some trustees? Because I know that the communists are terrible liars. I've read the literature. So where are some trustees? They tell me down Hampstead. So I go down there. So I joined. I sit down to join. There are one or two other people who come to join. And these are asking questions. And the t official Trotskyists can't answer. So I, who have come to join, and one of the joiners, I have to take up the defense of Trotskyism against the critics of those who want to join. So I join by defending critics. I become a very important person. In two shakes, I'm chairman of the Trotskyists. What? You were persuaded by Trotsky's account of the Russian Revolution. Um, I was persuaded by that. And by Trotsky's account of what had happened in the Soviet Union? I read, but, but uh, I must say, I read the, the, the Stalinist account. I bought the Stalinist books, I read them. Both of them were referring to Lenin. I bought the, the 12 volumes of Lenin, read them, referring to Marx, and I bought Capital Volume 1, the 18th movie of Louis Bonaparte. I read all of those, and then I said, no. I'm a Marxist and I want to join the Trotskyists. But I had read them before I... So when I went in there, they didn't have to teach me anything. I had to teach them. And there was one Trotskyist organization in that period? There, was, there never is one Trotskyist <laughs> organization. But there is one organization and there are one or two around. But it hadn't split up really then. Not only was the Trotskyist organization in Britain, it was international. We used to go to Paris and have conferences there, and I always went to the conference. And to be quite honest, I went because it was good to go to an international conference, but I thought the food was wonderful. 
so I always went to every conference and had three or four days eating because in England, oh, God of mercy. But you were also very active in, in Trotsky's politics in England in that period because I know people who I heard was, you speak I was a lot the secretary of the, of the British Trotsky's organization. Oh, yes, I was very active. Not only was I very active, I was known as such. And people used to say, not only I was a Trotskyist, I'm just talking about history. That is the real Marxist in England. That all that had before the war. I had a real reputation in Britain because I didn't only know about Trotsky and Stalin. I had read the classics of Marxism and my memory. I understood them. So people would send for me to Bristol, Glasgow, Aberdeen, Nottingham, North Wales, South Wales, Swansea, all over the goddamn place. Come and talk. And they didn't want to hear so much about Trotskyism. They wanted somebody who would talk about Marxism, very much concerned about the theories of Marxism, and somebody who would expound it. James became deeply involved with the African independence movement, editing pamphlets and working closely with George Padmore, a fellow Trinidadian. Padmore was not a Trotskyist, but a communist, who'd spent a number of years working in Moscow, but who by this time was primarily concerned with colonial freedom and the anti-imperialist struggle. Padmore and I had known one another as boys, 10 years old in the Caribbean. His father was a teacher, my father was a teacher. They both were friends and they used to meet and speak and we and George and I used to play together. But his father's name was Nurse, Alfonso Nurse. And he was Malcolm Nurse. Then he left and went away and I in the Caribbean began to read as the years went by and hear about a revolutionary leader named George Padmore. So I, I come to England. I come to England in 1932, somewhere in 34, 35. I hear that Padmore is coming from America or is going to have a meeting in London. So I go to see the great man. I go to see Malcolm Nurse. So he said, well, boy, how is it? And after the meeting, we went somewhere and having something to eat till four in the morning talking. In spite of your political differences, you and Padmore are increasingly able to work together. We were always able to work together. George would be in the Communist Party, I was a Trotskyist, but that didn't matter. We would always meet and talk and eat together. And is that around the, the African question? And no, it wasn't. We were friends and became friends. Padmore was, had, was a great admirer of Marxism. And although he had left the, 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 Lenin, the Moscow people, he made me to understand that for him, Marxism still remained the center of his political ideas. And we formed the Pan-African Congress. When was that? About 1937, I believe, I was the chairman. It was a very vague. We got together, but we chiefly to the idea of Africa. Caribbean didn't matter so much. He was full of the African history, Marxism, and I was full of the European history, which he appreciated as something, I used to insist, 
that Marxism takes off from where the historians, politicians, and economists of the bourgeois society finished. Their Marxism begins, political economy and so forth. And Padmo very much appreciated that. In addition to that, he was a very social person, a very fine person. He's very good-looking, very elegant, and so forth. And a Marxist, undeviating, but ready to talk to anybody. He was one of the old West Indian types. I don't know if you know what I mean. The old Victorian type. He was one, but a Marxist. And he didn't lose that. The old Victorian, you know, it was easy enough to imagine him in a frock coat and a topper. But he wasn't, but he was an elegant person, fine manners, speech, style, sympathetic, friendly, but undeviating Marxist. Oh, yes. Now, let me tell you, the persons whom I remember most clearly are George Padmo, Kenyatta, myself, one or two Nigerians. But Kenyatta was no more a Marxist than he was a follower of John Milton. Kenyatta joined the movement because it was a struggle against the imperialists. Padmo kept a balance, but his orientation was to make the movement be aware of the colonial struggle. I was the chairman, but Padmo was the one. Padmo taught me the importance of Pan-Africa. James's major work of this period was Black Jacobins, a history of the successful slave revolt in 1791 in what was then San Domingo and is now Haiti. Black Jacobins points the connections between black movements in the Caribbean and the revolutionary developments in France. To research the book, James had to spend a great deal of time in Paris. It was a great center, and I was fairly fluent in French at the time. And then I was a black man. And what was remarkable that they really were surprised that I knew more about French literature, apart from Greek and Roman, than they did, than some of the French people did, because the French people were reading modern French literature but I had done Molière and Racine, Corneille at school, and I taught it. So here was I, black, and I didn't know too many black people in those days, speaking French and familiar with French literature. I remember walking along with Braun, very intelligent man, Czechoslovakian. Was killed afterwards, but fluent in English literature and everything else. And we were walking along the street in Paris, and he was very sophisticated, very made a reference, he says. That question slipped me, and I told him, I think I must have told him, Racine or Corneille. So he stopped, but he, I remember, he says, Jim, where do you come from? <laughs> and I had to explain to him, I say, your problem is, in regard to me, you have in mind Africa, African tribes, African language. A West Indian is not that. English is my native language, and I was 10 years of age, I was doing Greek and Latin. 
So I grew up and then after a year or two, French literature and French language. So that, so that's me. So that I would know this is not surprising. What would be surprising is if I didn't know it. So Are you the, uh, had people worked on the primary documents of the Saint-Domingue Revolution in Paris before you went into there those archives? There were some writers. There were no people in English, but there were French writers who had done. But uh, none of them were Marxists, you see. And I had an angle, a method of handling the same material that they had handled with different results. That book created quite a sensation. It still remains the standard text, you know, after nearly 50 years. And they, in France in particular, they were glad to see it because there were no such books. Okay, with all due respect, can we come to an end? I'm very tired. How I take care of my looks is up to me, and for my hair only recital will do. You've written eloquently in this period about your friendship and relationship with Paul Robeson. I knew Paul, and like everybody who knew him, had an immense liking and respect for this magnificent person. He is the most astonishing person I have ever met. Not only he could sing, he was a good actor. He wasn't super, but his presence, and in addition to all these gifts which impressed the public, he was a marvelous man in private conversation. Paul would speak and speak at length, but he had the faculty that very few have, very few great speakers. He could listen, and he could talk a length of time and then listen to you and keep on listening. So you were never bothered by him. He's an extraordinary human being. He's a man I remember very well, very clearly, and with a great deal of respect and satisfaction. Did you agree with him politically? No. I wouldn't say that, but I kept away from that. I believe that the Stalinists made more of Paul's association with them than he did. He never said he belonged to anything, but he went along and would refer to them, and they would pick it up as Paul Robeson said, Robeson, Stalinism, the Communist Party, Paul Robeson, they kept that going. But Paul was, if anything, sympathetic to them. But I believe the man I knew was somewhat cautious, because he was a public figure, and to commit himself to those people would have been a technical mistake. A social mistake, in addition, personally, well, they, they're ready, they were Paul Robeson all the time, if you yes. listen to them you would believe, but he, even talking to me, he would say, well, you know, Stella, leave it there. Of course, Robeson played Toussaint Louverture. Yes, that was he a played Toussaint Louverture. That was before I went to the United States. That was in Britain here. And I wrote the play before I published The Black Jacobins. I don't know what was in my head. And then somebody saw it and told me. 
So I used to, t everybody used to talk to Paul and be glad to be in his company. In the 30s, it was very difficult, you know. Black people were isolated, there were so few of us. So I used to meet him periodically. We'd have some tea somewhere or something, some people talk. So I met him and I told him, by the way, I have a play, you know. And people think that you do very well. I think so too. He said, well, let me see it. And in those days, there weren't many plays in which a leading part would be played by a black man. So he read it and told me, yes, I would. And from there it went. That was written before uh, Black Jackman was published. Absolutely written But the before. whole conception of Black Jackman. The conception was, was there, but uh, I had written essays here and there, and I delivered lectures. I mean, people now talk about Black Jackman as an important historical book, but really, it was also a thesis about contemporary black politics, wasn't it? It was, and politics that is fundamental is always applicable to different periods of history, because fundamental politics always has behind it the struggle of different classes. Different sections of the class can struggle and kill one another, but that is not much of a social event as when one social structure is fighting against another part of the social structure. Certain logical and historical things emerge which are applicable to similar periods a thousand years before or after. But what is the significance of Toussaint Louverture for you? I mean, how do you see the connection between those events in, in Haiti then and the 20th century politics? I have already said during the last few minutes that any great revolutionary event in history, from it you can always find principles and historical movement ideas that are complied to others. I was saying that before. Now, that is so in any great revolution and the San Domingo Revolution was the first great revolution of black people. Now, when you consider the role that Africa was going to play in the world in the years to come, that then acquires a significance. Furthermore, it was a part of the French Revolution. So that you have in that historical event a duality in which it takes part in the great revolutions. It's very important. The first was the British. And at the same time, it points the finger to the revolutions among colonial peoples. So that that revolution is something that is worthy of consideration by every type of historian. If even you study the French Revolution, that is the extreme point of the French Revolution in Europe. But at the same time, it's the beginning of the colonial upheavals. So that is, a, from the point of view of the historian, a significant, in fact, a dominating feature of the study of history. That's a wonderful connection. But for you, it's not, it's not just by chance that that happens in the Caribbean, is it? The important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is the date of my first book, The Black Jacobins. It is 1938. That's to say it is before World War II and all that took place after. It, somehow or other, I believe, well, I don't want to go into this, 
but I believe it is the fact that I am from the Caribbean. Why do you attribute this to that, though? No, 1938 is a very important year in the Caribbean, after all. Yes, it's but coming to consciousness of the Caribbean yes, labor but, movement. But I don't want to go into that because it will lead me too far. In 1938, C.L.R. James went to the United States for what turned out to be a major phase of his political life, but which at the time he thought would only be a short visit. Had you always wanted to go? I wanted to go, but not particularly. When you My went, orientation you... was towards Britain from literature, history. When you went, did you realize you'd be there so long? No, I didn't. I went intending to come back. But I stayed and I decided, well, it would be good to stay a little longer. And I asked one or two people, particularly Freddie Forrest, Raya Dunayevskaya. And she persisted in telling me, don't go back, stay. She felt that I was introducing something that the movement needed. Now, this is the period when you met Trotsky in... in no, in 38. I met Trotsky, yes. and I was a member of the Trotskyist movement with many doubts, political doubts. One has them everywhere. All my ideas today are not definitive, but I met him in this about March 38, and I had just spent a few days in Mexico talking to him, and then something happened. My doubts became certain because Trotsky had answered nothing of all that was developing inside of me. I wanted to know this and that. And I came to the conclusion then that an international in the form of a certain body of people organized to lead the masses, that was finished. We had arrived at a stage where there was no need to any leading organized body. I'll come to that in a minute, but I want to know what your impression of Trotsky was, nevertheless. That is a question always asked me, and it's a question that I cannot answer. What is the impression have I got of Trotsky? Was he a tall man or short man? Well, no, I mean, were well, you impressed what, by him? I was impressed by him. And as a matter of fact, I couldn't be impressed by him because I had read it all before. So there it was in person what I already had in mind. People ask me that question, particularly the Americans, they are very much impressed with the, impressed with the personality of Bataille. I was impressed with one thing. He moved about in languages with a facility that me, Anglo-Saxon mentality, found very strange. He would speak as in, uh, he spoke in English and had prepared because of me. But frequently, he couldn't find an English word, he would use a French word. But in between, German, Russian, whatever, that, uh, that dazzled me. But what he said did not impress me particularly, because I knew it all before. I had read his writings, I was educated not on Marx, but on the Trotsky's writings. I went to Marx and Lenin afterwards. James's mature political position, which has influenced countless black generations since then, was crystallized in the course of his final break with Trotskyism. He now began to develop, write, and speak about this position under the pseudonym J.R. Johnson. 
James returned to the roots of Marxism, developing his own view of Lenin's contribution, which led him to emphasize the self-activity of the working class and the autonomy of the black struggle, as opposed to the often-held view of the party as the vanguard and centralizing force of the revolution. The common view here would be to associate Lenin's name and Leninism with a very strong position on democratic centralism. That is the common view. But that is not my reading of Lenin. Lenin was driven to that because the social democracy had broken entirely with what he had expected of it. It's very important to know that Lenin did not expect the social democratic betrayal in 1914. Then he became more concerned than ever with the independent party. You can misread his early writings where he said it merely passing. But it is the betrayal in 1914 which he didn't expect at all that startled him. And he began to say, they are one party, we have to form another one. Now that is important to remember because the emphasis on the party was the direct product of the betrayal in 1914. And his writings before and afterwards, the last writings in 1923, show that he still had in his mind a democratic revolutionary movement. James has always written on a wide variety of subjects, historical and cultural. Always in his writing, he is connecting important historical moments with great literary and artistic figures like Shakespeare and Michelangelo, Picasso and Herman Melville. This view is most forcefully developed in Mariner's Renegades and Castaways, the book about Melville which he submitted as part of his case against being expelled from the United States in the days of McCarthyism. For me, the same movement, social forces, instinctive strivings that you see in the big political movements, those take a literary form with the great writer or the artist. But it is something the world is changing. So it's pure. And a highly sensitive writer, he's aware of something and he writes. That's what I think. You can't separate them. But what was it about Melville that attracted you? No, that is very difficult to say. That is a man whom I still believe, apart from Shakespeare, handles the English language with a vividness and yet an instinct for the fundamental that I see in nobody else. Those that, if I had to choose two writers, Shakespeare is one, the second one is Melville. A third might be a very reactionary Englishman, Edmund Burke. Great master of the language. You know his work? Not, not as well as you do. Not as well as me, but you know it? Well, yes. My reference is... My reference. Oh, yes. But, I mean, the, the handling of the language is very important, but you are, well, not, a, you are not a formalist literary critic. You I don't go not. to Melville just because he wrote well. No, I don't say that at all. I believe that that mastery of the language is not a gift that you are a good writer, but you, this mastery of the language means that in reality, all reality finds a new expression and a powerfully new language 
means a powerfully new expression of the reality. After his expulsion from the States, James went back again at once to Trinidad. He edited the paper of the People's National Movement, the party led by Eric Williams, his old pupil, author of Capitalism and Slavery. James had always argued that the Caribbean should not be dependent on the United States, but this was not the view of Eric Williams, by then Prime Minister, who wrote to a local newspaper dissociating himself from James's position. The Americans insisted, I have heard so, that he would, they would give help. They would help the Trinidad government. But the first thing they wanted to be sure of was his relation with James. And that accounted for Williams's reversal of everybody. Twenty-six people called. Say, you read the paper? Yes. You read what Dr. Williams said? Please, Dr. Jane, what have I say, I don't know. What did he give as a reason for? No, he gave no reason. He merely indicated that he was not hostile to the domination that the British and through the British, the Americans exercised over the Caribbean. While we had been writing all the time that that was the enemy, that was the people we have to deal with. And this article said, no, it's all right. That was the difference. But the break didn't stop you because you went on to, I, to, to organize he, against it. He couldn't right? stop me. I mean, the British imperialism wouldn't stop me. Williams couldn't. No. But it was a blow because I had been his sponsor and he had done a lot for me since he was about 14 years old. I remember him as a little boy in the fourth form downstairs at QRC with his glasses and short pants. <laughs> I will ask, end with a more personal question. E.P. Thompson, at the back of that volume on your life and times has recently come out, said about you, first of all, he noticed, he commented on your Catholicity of taste, the wide range of interests that you had. Secondly, on the revolutionary thrust of your thinking. But he also said something at the end about that it also has something to do with what he called the proper appreciation of the game of cricket. There's Are the things connected? No, not to me. There may be, I could sit down and make all sorts of connections. I don't want to do that. Because that, I couldn't do that to carry any conviction. But Beyond the Boundary begins to carry conviction. Uh, that, is a, that is a whole book. But to sit down and talk to you for five minutes, that I don't want to do. But you're still deeply involved in what happens on the cricket pitch. Absolutely. Matters, not just as a game. No, no, I like it. And people are involved. And when... The, a cricket match lasts for five days today in 1984 and you get thousands of people turning up for five days the modern world don't spend five hours on anything they will finish up with it and go five days in other words that thing has penetrated deep into fundamental realities so that people in 1984 can go and spend five days but historically does it matter who wins there I know it doesn't matter who wins to me. I used to want the West Indians to win. And that remained with me for a long time. But now I don't care. When you look back at your life, would you think of yourself as basically an optimist or a pessimist? 
or are those not the sort of terms you'd use? I never dream of using them. I deal with the historical facts as they are. What will happen tomorrow, I don't know. But by and large, I believe what Marx has said, socialism or barbarism. So it's socialism with everybody taking part, or barbarism, some brutal people who dominate millions of people today. Socialism or barbarism? Oh, yes. Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview uh, by Stuart Harl with uh, Sigalar James uh, towards uh, the end of his life uh, during the 1980s, and of course, uh, this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, uh, August 13th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live my studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our program, more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and of course, that was uh, Detroit's own uh, Motown sound, uh, The Temptations, uh, from uh, the album entitled Puzzle Palace, and of course, uh, that song uh, was entitled uh, Message from a Black Man. And uh, right now we want to move into a uh, address that was delivered uh, earlier today at the African National Congress Northwest Provincial Conference. And uh, this is from um, African National Congress Deputy President and also Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa, David Mabusa. Uh, Let's listen uh, to this address uh, that was delivered uh, to uh, the Northwest Provincial African National Congress uh, provisional conference. All right. On that note, we'll take you straight back to the Northwest and the ANC's provincial elective conference there. Viva! Viva! Viva, Sanko! Viva! <laughs> Viva, Sanko! Viva! Viva the ANC Youth League! Viva! Viva the ANC Women's League, viva! Viva! Amanda! Members of the National Executive Committee of the ANC, members of the IPC, you still, you still here? I'll be wrong if I don't acknowledge the journey that you have traveled to thus far. The leadership of our alliance, SACP, Kosatu, Sanko, the leadership of our leagues, delegates to this conference, our interfaith leaders, and all invited guests. We bring with us revolutionary greetings and words of encouragement from the National Executive Committee, especially following years of political challenges confronting the province without an elected provincial leadership. It is for this reason that as the NEC, we want to thank everyone, every member of our glorious movement at branch, at regional level, provincially, for the maturity that you have displayed 
in ensuring that this conference finally sits. You will be aware that this conference takes place after other successful conferences in KZN, Gauteng, Limpopo, Mpumalanga, Northern Cape, and the Eastern Cape. Our sincere gratitude is extended to all members and ANC supporters who have dedicated their time and energies in making this conference a reality, especially the members of the IPC. We know that despite all the challenges in this province, this province still remains the home of the ANC. We call this province the home of the ANC because of your hard work on, on a daily basis, your dedication, your working tirelessly to ensure that the name of the ANC and the integrity of the ANC is protected. Our volunteers understand that even in the face of challenges, in the face of hardship, in the face of arbitrary attacks, the unity of the ANC should at all times be preserved. This goal is still on the agenda of our revolutionary journey as we work towards to consolidate the gains of our democratic breakthrough. It is this conference that should, at this conclusion, deliver to the people of Northwest a leadership collective that will be equal to the task of building sustainable and resilient structures to execute the mandate of building a better life for our people in this province. Your determination, therefore, of making this conference a success, I must say, is noted appreciated and saluted. We want to thank you for your cooperation. We have cooperated with all our National Executive Committee members who are deployed here. We have worked with them to this point. And I'm sure we are going to go until the end of this conference. This conference is taking place during a very special month in the calendar of our country, wherein we take time to reflect on the contribution of women
in the struggle for liberation, as well as an, our ongoing struggle for women's equality, dignity, and socio-economic emancipation. It is the 1956 historic defiance of women led by comrades like Lillian Goy, Helen Joseph, Sophie Debrains against the regime of stradom and his apartheid laws of subjugation which became one of the turning points in our collective history towards the attainment of our freedom and democracy that we enjoy today. These brave and strong-willed women gave impetus to our struggle to build a society that is founded on human rights equality and a total socio-economic emancipation for all, irrespective of gender, irrespective of race, ethnicity, religion, or social class. It is their courageous act of defiance against the apartheid regime that ushered in the democratic order that all of us we enjoy today. Such rights are finding expressions in all sectors of development and human progress. Our right-based society is pivoted on a strong constitutional dispensation, progressive laws that we've passed that seeks to protect women and advance their equal participation in all facets of life. Because of these fast and forward-thinking laws, more women are now in high-ranking positions in the public sector as well as in the private sector. While standing here, we celebrate the journey we have traveled and the inroads that we have made towards the emancipation of women. We still have so much more to do to ensure women's freedom and dignity in our country. Our women are not safe. Our women demand safety. Our struggle for socio-economic freedom is intertwined with the struggle for women's freedom to choose what to become, to choose for their reproductive health, to choose for their own dignity, to choose for a safe life for themselves whether in private or public spaces, 
women should feel free. Collectively, these issues are fundamental human rights. Therefore, as the ANC, it is our collective responsibility to confront any acts of discrimination against women, as well as gender-based violence and femicide. Freedom, human dignity, and respect for human rights these are our core values upon which our movement was founded. It is the lasting legacy and lessons that our longest serving president, O.R. Tambo, taught us to emulate. We must therefore, as a movement, act against all forms of gender oppression and ensure that women play a full role in the life of our organization, the ANC, and contribute meaningfully to the development and progress of our nation. Comrades, the conference is taking place at a time when our movement, in its totality, is facing challenges to maintaining unity of purpose, ideological coherence, as we try on a daily basis to prosecute our struggle. It is a known fact that we are facing challenges. We meet at a time when the people that we profess to lead the people out there that we are serving. They are now starting to question themselves and they doubt our ability to provide leadership to the complex societal challenges of the moment. The ANC, in its history of existence, it has faced many challenges before, but not the kind of challenges that are so serious to an extent that it's even threatening the very own existence of our organization. Never have our differences of opinion gone beyond the ideological conception of what the character and the soul of the ANC should look like. Never have our internal organizational fractures, leadership preferences, tactical differences, posed such an existential threat to the life and legacy of such a glorious movement. As a result, we seem to be straying from our revolutionary duty. We seem to be moving away from our revolutionary duty 
that of serving our people, and that of building a united South Africa. We are straying towards inward focus caused by factional infightings that is destructive for the movement like the ANC. Despite our organization's impressive history of selfless struggle for the liberation of our country and its people, the progress that we have registered in improving the lives of our people, everything gets overshadowed by these petty squabbles. Increasingly, the people of South Africa, who for years mobilized under the banner of the ANC as the people's movement, the banner of freedom, the spear and the shield of our people, they doubt whether they are still relevant. Are they still the center of our focus? Are they still the center of our agenda? Our people see an organization that is more preoccupied about internal interests of self-preservation than that of effectively leading society, governing the country, with the required authority. They question whether we still have the fire in our bellies to change their current fortunes, to realize a better life for all, as we have promised in our 1994 election manifesto, including the social contract we have entered with them in subsequent election cycles. Comrades, we have to work very hard to eradicate these negative tendencies and regressive practices within the movement. The movement is your organization. You must protect it. These issues and related challenges were acknowledged from the 48th National Conference where they were characterized then as the sins of incumbents. Until the 54th National Conference, they were characterized as the ever-growing self-serving interests competing for proximity to the position of power in order to control resources for corrupt practices and patronage, rather than serving the interests of the people of South Africa as a whole. When we started here, I heard our priest was preaching. He was talking about money, money, I heard a message from the SACP talking about money, 
money. These are things that they observe in us. And we should take it to heart. Should take it to heart. They are raising these things so that the ANC should attend to it. Notwithstanding all these challenges that I've mentioned, we stand before you to convey this message on behalf of the National Executive Committee of the ANC that your ANC is a dynamic organization that has for over a century managed to overcome every test and challenge thrown its way. The ANC has the capacity to renew, to course correct itself, to reposition itself as an agent of positive change and social progress. All of us as cadres of this movement must focus on rebuilding this movement, this glorious movement, the ANC, and place it firmly on its historic revolutionary path of changing the lives of our people. That is why the 54th National Conference appropriately adopted a resolution to work towards unity and renewal of the organization. I'm sure the conference is going to deliberate on re, uh, the unity of the organization, is going to deliberate on renewal of this organization. I was happy here when I came in here. I was greeted by a very jovial conference, people singing, happy. As if that was not enough, as we wanted to take the national anthem, another group came singing. It was good. For the longest time, I've been forgotten when the last time I saw you happy. <laughs> Forgotten. Comrades, we must make this unit and renewal to happen. It must happen. It is time. It is time to make it happen. You can't, you can't betray the people of the Northwest. Year in, year out, the people of the Northwest, they don't disappoint you. They religiously vote for the ANC. So why? Why are we disappointing them? Why are we disappointing them? Well, today, this marks a turning point 
From this conference going forward, we are going to have a renewed ANC in the Northwest. I wish you all the best as you deliberate, as you deal with conference matters, respect one another. Respect this leadership that is here, work with them, build the ANC. When I reach home, I'll open the TV and still check whether you're still fine. Don't use chairs against each other. No. I'm confident about this mood that I've seen. And as I leave here, I'm going to phone the president and I tell him I've, I'm from another conference. The mood is very good. Amanda, I wish you well, comrades. Thank you very much. Thank you. Northwest. Comrades, Northwest will be united. The program of renewal, unity, and rebuilding will succeed in the Northwest. You are a testimony as delegates that you want to Northwest finally to have a leadership and to emerge like all other provinces. And then let me thank the Deputy President for the message delivered and, uh, and uh, at this juncture will be allowing the media to then excuse us and uh, as we will be going into the closed session and then also the Deputy President you are at liberty at your point Arumugubi Arumugubi but is at liberty to then indicate Razamai is leaving. So the deputy president is leaving. I think I'm going to go to the deputy president. Deputy President um, of the ANC, Didi Mabuza, there just uh, sharing his thoughts on um, the direction that the ANC needs to go in, remarking on uh, the revolutionary party it once was, that it's lost trust 
with the people of the Northwest who religiously vote for the party uh, and they've let them down. So really acknowledging today that this is a, a turning point. Today marks a turning point. We are going to have a renewed ANC in the province is what he said. We'll have some analysis on um, what he had to say in that speech in just a moment. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Deputy President uh, David Mabusa. Deputy President of the African National Congress and Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa. We'll take a break and we'll be back with our concluding remarks. You've been listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today, Saturday, August 13th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition uh, of our program. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And in our next episode, uh, we will have uh, the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention briefing uh, that took place uh, on Thursday. And, um, of course, uh, we'll have other uh, information and uh, presentations dealing with uh, the entire Black August uh, commemoration taking place uh, this month. So we're going to close out our program uh, today uh, with the music of Jackie McLean. This is taken uh, from a 1966 album entitled Dr. 
Jocko. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe uh, signing off and have a beautiful week. Thank <laughs> you.